Praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see old friends back. It's good to see individuals here that we don't normally see. It's good to see those of you who I know by the grace of God have, uh, have gone through some difficulties to be here. And yet here you are in the presence of God Almighty singing the praises of Jesus Christ. Uh, because of that, again, I just want to encourage you. I want to remind you of how worthy Jesus Christ is of all of your worship. As a matter of fact, what we're going to do here today is we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture that really sets before us the worthiness of Christ. Christ is worthy of your praise. Christ is worthy of the church's praise. Christ is worthy of angelic praise. Christ is worthy of all the, all creatures everywhere and anywhere of giving praise to Jesus Christ. And you're here to do that this morning. I say that, I remind you of that because I want you to be lifted from a sense of soberness or somberness that you might have. I want you, your soul to be elevated. I want you to think of God and all of his glory. I want you to realize that Jesus Christ performed a great work for your soul, a great work for which you and I must give to him ever never-ending praises. And so all of that we're going to see comes to us not only by way of a general exhortation, it also comes to us by way of the specific teaching of Scripture. So with that in mind, I'd like to ask you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation, the sixth chapter. Revelation chapter 6. Uh, you, might, you may be noticing here now that we are kind of continuing in our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, it is my hope now here, uh, with uh, beginning with this sixth chapter, to continue on throughout the entire book. I will need your prayers as I, as I try to navigate this passage of scripture uh, with you and for you. I need your prayers that I might set before you Jesus Christ as the one who is the one by which the victory of God comes to you. I want to set this passage of scripture, this great book before you in such a way as to see that God's purposes will be accomplished. I want you to see and understand that even in the purposeful accomplishment of God's purposes, somehow in an inexplicable way, sinners and Satan and, 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 and demonic forces rebel against God. And yet at the same time, there is a people that profess his name. There is a people who stay faithful to Jesus Christ no matter what. I want to navigate you through this passage of scripture to see that. These great themes, these broad lines of the victory of God, of the blessedness of the people of God, and the glory of God being accomplished. I want you to see that as we work through this, cha uh, this, uh, uh, this book of Revelation. And in order to do that, in order to set the stage for that, we will, we will once again come back now to these early chapters, now chapter 6. And in the sixth chapter, even before we begin, even before I read it to you, one of the things that I want you to be aware of is that the great emphasis in this passage of Scripture is on the worthiness of Jesus Christ. We will hear this repeated in this chapter that Jesus Christ is worthy. We will see, we will see praise going to Jesus Christ from a number of places. We will see, we will see redeemed humanity praising Jesus Christ. We will see angels praising Jesus Christ. We will see every created thing praising Jesus Christ. And why is there this chorus of praise? Because Jesus Christ is worthy of it. What's interesting is that when we kind of take a closer look at this passage of Scripture, we see not only the worthiness of Jesus Christ, but we see something specific as to why Jesus Christ is worthy. In a general way, I'm going to kind of focus in on this, but in a general way, he's worthy because of his work of redemption. But let me also say this, in a specific way, 
to Revelation chapter 6 in a specific way why Jesus Christ has ascribed this worthiness is because he is the only one on earth, above the earth, and under the earth who is worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hand. This scroll, what is it? This scroll that the Father holds in his hands. This scroll that is sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? And I want you to see from this passage of Scripture that the very fact that Jesus Christ is worthy and comes forth and takes the scroll from the Father's hands gives to you and me great reason to praise Jesus Christ. And so what I hope to do from this, with this passage of Scripture, Revelation chapter 6, is to set before you, number one, the worthiness of Christ, and then number two, the worship of Christ because He is worthy. The worthiness of Christ and the worship of Christ. And that is set forth here for us in this, uh, in this sixth chapter of Revelation. So take your Bibles, please. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6 and let's read it together again, as I said before, the worthiness of Christ and the worship of Christ. Revelation, the entire sixth chapter. Please hear the word of God. I'm sorry, did I say the sixth chapter? My, I can't believe I just did that. It's the fifth chapter. Please forgive me. <laughs> Please forgive me. Oh, I got the fifth chapter in front of me. I got the fifth chapter in my notes. Oh, forgive me. The fifth chapter, yeah. So, Revelation chapter 5. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, I'm sorry, to receive, excuse me here, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I, heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. 
and the four beasts said, Amen, and the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Well, this passage of Scripture contains much for us, does it not? This passage of Scripture sets before us a glorious scene in heaven. This passage of Scripture is a continuation of what we had already seen last week in Revelation chapter 4, where the one who was the center of all of our focus was he who sat upon the throne. You might remember that we looked at that fourth chapter last week under the twofold heading, the glory of God declared and the worship of God described. And by way of that worship of God described, do you remember what we said, how we kind of gleaned from Scripture what worship involves? Remember we said this point, that worship always involves the church, or you as an individual, ascribing to God what He has revealed about Himself. God makes known known these great attributes, these great features of His nature. And when you and I worship, the way that we worship is to ascribe back to God what He has revealed about Himself. We don't invent ideas about God. We're not not looking for novel ways of, of, of thinking about God. We are trying to give back to God, again, that which He has revealed concerning Himself. There was another aspect of worship that was before us as well, and that was when the and that was when the four and twenty elders threw their uh, placed their crowns or, or cast their crowns uh, at the feet of Jesus, and we said that has that has implications for our worship as well. Saying this, that when we worship God, we worship Him by not only ascribing to Him what He has revealed about Himself, we worship God by returning to Him that which He has given us and worked through us. It's that whole concept of, again, the the talents that God has given to us. Again, in that parable, now those of us who have received one or five, however many, we return back to God that which he has given to us, but with our work added to it. Not that our works are worthy, not that our works have merit before God, but it is giving back to God that which he has worked within our hearts and in our lives. So the whole picture in Revelation chapter 4 was a picture of worship. In Revelation chapter 5, the picture of worship continues. And what that reminds us of is this. You might remember I made this point. That even in the midst of God's concern for the, of Christ's concern for the churches, giving those seven letters against that backdrop of all the challenge and all the conflict that the church faces, there is even right now the eternal worship of God going on. Your circumstances, as much as they move you, as much as they impact you, is as difficult as they are. Take nothing away from the eternal worship of God in heaven. You need that perspective. I need that perspective. You need to be aware that when everything seems to be going against you, God is still on His throne. And because God is on His throne, He is still being worshipped. And so we're going to see this here again carried through today. Well, in this fifth chapter, it's kind of interesting. You remember the fourth chapter? Everything revolved around the throne. Everything by way of all the movements. We could, we could have divided that fourth chapter by way of what was happening before the throne. Or what was going on on the throne. Or what was happening around the throne. The throne, in a very real way, was the centerpiece of our focus. Well, as we come into Revelation chapter 5, what we find is that the centerpiece of our focus now, and there are many things that catch our attention, are there not, this, this angelic worship that goes on, this, this, this accumulation of the people of God ascribing worship, uh, this idea of the, the seven-sealed book and, and of God on the throne and of, of the description of Jesus Christ as both a lamb and a lion, the root of David, all of these things catch our attention. 
But if I can suggest this to you, I think what controls the fifth chapter is everything that goes on concerning the scroll that is in the hand of the Father. Again, look here at uh, at Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And what you will find as you go through this fifth chapter over and over again, reference is made to the book or to the scroll. And this this book or this scroll in a very real way becomes the, the central point of focus around which everything takes place. The scroll is in the Father's hand. The Lord Jesus Christ, the question is asked, who is able to, to open the book? Uh, again, the, the, there's the weeping of John because John realizes nobody's able to open this book. And then this one comes forth, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, the one who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes and what does he do? He approaches the Father's throne and he takes the scroll. And there is now rejoicing in heaven. And we're going to see how all these things work out. Everything happening, revolving around the scroll. So what I'm trying to do for you in this, in this chapter, because we're looking at the, at the chapter in its entirety, we're not going to so much focus on the particular details of every step along the way. I want to ask you if we can to keep our focus on what is happening around the scroll and concerning the scroll. And I want to suggest to you this, these two points. Number one, when the scroll is taken from the hand of God the Father, it is taken because Jesus Christ has shown himself to be worthy of such an action. The worthiness of Christ, you see. And then I want you to see that when Jesus Christ does take this scroll from the hand of the Father, all of, all of the created order, all of the created order bows in worship. And so we have the worthiness of Christ and we have the worship of Christ all revolving around the scroll. Now, why am I choosing to to engage this passage of Scripture in this this light? Well, number one, because I do believe upon a fair reading of the the passage of of Revelation chapter 5, while there is much going on, uh, there's a lot of things going on that catch our attention. As I said before, the description of Christ himself is worthy of a series of sermons. Uh, the reality of this worship that goes on, and there are so many. It's what's interesting is that there are things about worship that are that we still that the church still engages in today that are found in this fifth chapter. If you look, you may have noticed you find that there is prayer in this chapter. You find that there is praise in this chapter. You find that there is a proclamation of the works of Christ in this chapter. Those are the elements of worship. The church, when it gathers to worship, does those things. And we see this here, again, in heaven. There are other things that we can talk about as well. The, the, the vision of the created order. We have the, four, we have the four beasts. We have the four and twenty elders. You remember what we said about that last week? The four beasts represented angelic beings. The four and twenty elders represented redeemed humanity. Then we have a reference to myriads of angels. Thousands and ten thousands and thousands and thousands. That's kind of, that catches our attention, doesn't it? Stop and think of that picture around the throne, myriads and myriads of angels. Can you picture that in your mind? Will you allow yourself to think that in your worship in this present moment at 1037 on, a Lord's, on this Lord's Day, that your worship is joined with the worship of those in heaven? It's a beautiful thing to think of, isn't it? And it, it, can, it, can, it can catch our attention and we can develop it. 
We can think of the fact that again, again, not only by way of redeemed humanity and not only by way of the myriads of angels, again, coming down at the latter part of the, uh, of, uh, of the, of the chapter is the reality that, that all of creation, everything above the earth and on the earth and under the earth joins in this praise. And we can talk about that. We could talk, and we would rightly be, this would be our proper focus. We could talk about how in this chapter, the Lord Jesus Christ is worshiped and adored together with the Father in a way of this essential equality. That there is no worship that is ascribed to the Father that is not ascribed to the Son. All these things are worth looking at in detail. But my purpose in this, in this working through this book of Revelation is not going to be to settle in on the various details. They're important. And, and maybe in years to come, we can revisit some of these things. But my purpose in working through this book of Revelation is to keep before you the primary themes that are in front of us here. And I want you to see that in this fifth chapter, something pivotal is happening. And what's happening, again, is what gives reason for all this praise. But what's happening is essentially this. If you'll allow me to use this terminology... The scroll of human destiny is taken from the hand of the Father by Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is worthy and the Father releases it to Him. And upon that, we now will have an unfolding of everything that God purposes for His creation. We will see, and in the unfolding of these seven seals, we will see the victory of God assured. We will see the judgment upon the rebellious. We will see the conflict between the righteous and the wicked. We will see Christ crowned as Lord over all. And we will see the eternal blessedness of the people of God. That's the theme. That's the sum sum and substance of this book of Revelation. Yes, we can get caught up in the details. And the details are important. You'll probably hear me say that over and over again. Oh, but if we can keep the primary thing in front of us, I want you to know and I want you to see that there is promise for the people of God, a great victory. And that victory revolves around the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the accomplishment of God the Father. And you're bound up in that, my brothers and sisters. You're bound up in that, that great victory that is, that, that is guaranteed and that is unveiled in this passage of Scripture. Well, having said all that, we must now get to the details of the passage. And what I would set before you by way of a, uh, by way of a, a primary uh, doctrine that we're going to be developing here, it would be as follows, our principle, that, and, and, it's, it, and it, is, it is as follows, that Jesus Christ, by virtue of his person and work, is the only one with authority and power to execute and bring to pass the will of the Father for his entire creation. I want to say that again. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his person and his work. We'll see that. John, again, is weeping uh, when no one can open the book. Why is John weeping when no one opens the book? Because John is left in that, in that, very, in that, in that, in that mentally distressful situation. He's asking himself the question, is all meaningless? Is there no reason? Is there no purpose? No one can open the book. Nobody can, can unseal this. and Nobody can declare, is life meaningless? And Jesus Christ comes forth. Jesus Christ turns John's weeping into joy. Does that strike a chord with you? Does Jesus Christ coming forward in your moment of weeping strike a chord in your soul? It did for John. So again, coming back to our proposition, Jesus Christ by virtue of his person, the lamb that was slain, the one that was prophesied there in Genesis 49. The one, that, the one that John the Baptist spoke of in John chapter 1. Behold the Lamb of God. That one came forth. And that one did a work. 
And what was the work that he did? Thou art worthy because thou, thou was slain and hast redeemed us unto God. One of the interesting things by way of the worth and the worthiness of Jesus Christ in this passage of scripture is that his worthiness in this passage is not so much pointing at his essential nature. And he's worthy of worship in his essential nature. We go to John chapter 1. We go to Colossians chapter 1. We go to Hebrew. We go to Hebrews uh, uh, chapter 1. We go to uh, places like uh, Romans chapter uh, uh, 9 verse 5. We go to places like 2 Timothy chapter 3 uh, verses 16 and 17. And we see all of the essential qualities of Jesus Christ that elicit praise from the church. But in this passage of scripture, it's not his nature. It's his work that's set forth. Thou art worthy because thou wast slain. Oh, and why was he slain? Why was he slain? He was slain to redeem a people unto God. And again, another theme in this passage of Scripture that we can focus on was there in verse 9. He's redeemed the people out of every nation, every tribe, every, every kindred, every tongue. Oh, this, 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 this conglomerate of the people of God. That's, what, that's one of the things that, that, that makes the church as, as beautiful as it is. You look and you see people of every kind. And now again, let me say this. I've heard sermons on, on Revelation chapter 5 that, that emphasized, again, the, the great variety within the church of Jesus Christ. That's a sub-point fair enough. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ taking the scroll. That's what's being focused on here. And when Jesus Christ receives the scroll from his Father, everything changes. Everything changes for John. Everything changes for the, for the, uh, for the church and for, and for the angelic order and for every living thing. And so by God's grace, we'll get to this. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his person and work, is the only one with authority. This strong angel comes forth and what does he say? Who is worthy? He asked the question above the earth, under the earth and on the earth. No one is worthy. And only Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to do the work laid out here. Only Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to be your Savior and to be my Savior. And to be my Savior. And so in this passage of Scripture, as I said before, Jesus Christ, by virtue of His person and work, is the only one with authority and power to execute and bring the past the will of the Father. That's what's happening here. Jesus Christ, can I say it this way, is acting as the great executor of the will of God. He's bringing the past, everything that God has determined for you for humanity. What is this scroll? What is this book? There's no title given to it. And I and I hesitate to even try to give a title to it. Commentators have used things like this. It's the scroll of destiny. It's the book of that which will happen uh, by way of all uh, by way of all of, of creation. God's purposes being fulfilled and Jesus Christ is the only one that can come forth to open this book. So again, what is the doctrine? This is probably the fourth or fifth time I've repeated it, so you probably have it by now, but let me give it to you once again. What is the doctrine? Jesus Christ, by virtue of his person and work, is the only one with authority and power to execute and to bring to pass the will of the Father. The outline we're going to follow is very simple. Last week we followed a two-point outline. The glory of God declared... Uh, and, and the uh, uh, and the uh, and the worship of God described. We're going to follow another simple two-point outline today as well. We're going to see Christ's worthiness to take and open the scroll, and number two, His worship for having taken <clears throat> and opening the scroll. His worthiness to take the scroll, His worship for taking the scroll. Very simple outline. Well, the first I want you to see then with me here is in verses one through seven of Revelation. 
his worthiness to take and open the scroll. Let's take a look at the passage again. Let's just read it here very quickly. Again, Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And I saw in the hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came, and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. The scroll, you see, the scroll is a, is a focal point in this fifth chapter. The scroll is kind of controlling uh, everything that's going on. And the first thing that I want you to see and understand then is the fact of Christ's worthiness to take the scroll. I think if we look at this passage of Scripture, we can see that there are three factors that kind of add to or give us an explanation as to the worthiness of Christ. The worthiness of Christ. First, I want you to see and notice how that this worthiness is, is a unique worthiness. It's, it, it, is, it is a worthiness that is unique to Jesus Christ. And we get that again from what we see here by way of the angel. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? The question goes out, who can open this book? And no one dares come forward. Not even the most brazen sinner comes forward. Not even the holiest saint comes forward. Not even the mightiest angel comes forward. Why? Because no one is worthy to open this scroll that God has in His hands, this book that God has in His hands. Who would dare come and approach the throne and take that scroll from the hand of God the Father? None would. Oh, but one is found. And I want you to see and understand, therefore, when we talk about the worthiness of Christ, it is a worthiness that is unique to His person, none like Jesus. I think you've heard me say this before. It's kind of a kind of a colloquialism. There's it's not a very technical statement, but I think you've heard me say this before. If I can only have one person standing next to me as I stand, as I, if I can only have one person standing next to me of all of human history, as I stand before God Almighty and give an account for my soul and for what I've done. There's only one person I want, and that's Jesus Christ. There have been a lot of good men in human history. There have been a lot of significant people in human history. But when all was said and done, who do you want on your side on that day? Who do you want pleading your cause on that day? It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who is uniquely qualified to take the scroll from the Father. He is the one who is uniquely qualified to be your Savior. And let me ask you about this. Do you see Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in that light? Do you see Jesus Christ as a great religious figure? Do you see Jesus Christ as, a, as an important individual in history? Do you see Jesus Christ as, as, as someone, a name that's used for people to curse, or maybe a, a name to use that sometimes people reduce to nothing more than a, than a good luck charm? Or do you see Jesus Christ as the only hope for your soul? You see, in heaven and earth, above the earth and under the earth, no one can come and take the scroll from God so that God the Father's hand, but Jesus Christ can. And I want you to see and I want you to understand that His worthiness 
is all bound up in the uniqueness of his person. The second thing I want you to see about this worthiness is that this worthiness, the worthiness, the, the worthiness of Christ and the awareness of that is a great comfort to God's people. Did you notice how John was weeping? The question goes out, who is worthy? No, no, no answer comes back. And John begins to weep. And we ask ourselves the question, well, John, why are you weeping? And it's kind of interesting. I think the best, the best uh, kind of answer that I came across in preparation for this is the fact that, with, with, uh, that, that John is realizing that without the, the purposes of God unveiled or unfolded, without the purposes of God made known, without somebody to execute the will of God on earth, what hope is there for humanity? It very much echoes what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ is not risen from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. What would it be like for you? I don't know where your mind, where your mindset is on this. I think I can assume some of these things, but I don't dare do that in a way. What would your life be like if you knew that life was meaningless? People are reduced to this, are they not? People are reduced to no hope beyond this world. People think that we live our, our 60, 50, 70, 80, whatever years, and we die and that's it. Life is reduced to hopelessness. And I think John is aware of that. And John cannot bear the fact of all of the created order having no ultimate meaning. This is a, uh, it's an overused word, but I have to use it. This is an existential issue that John is dealing with. And when John sees and understands that Jesus Christ is the one who executes the will of God, all oh, this, the sorrow is turned into joy. And so again, this reality that Jesus Christ is worthy to execute the will of the Father gives great joy and great peace to the people of God. I want you to stop and think of something here. Do you begin to understand why there's going to be a chorus of praise that rises and rises and rises? Can I challenge you here this morning? Do you stop and see why in one sense I fully understand this? I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be heavy-handed with you. But do you see and understand why when we as the people of God gather for the worship of God on the Lord's Day morning, our minds and hearts should be elevated? To think of what Christ has done for us. We come in in a somber frame and we sing in a somber frame. We come in and sing in a somber frame and we listen in a somber frame. Half the time, and again, I'm, not, I'm only halfway joking here, but so many times the preacher puts you to sleep. I understand these things. But I want you to see and understand that if we grasp what John was seeing on that day, oh, how worship will be elevated. The soul again will be lifted up. And so I say to you, listen, when you come to the place of worship, come with a realization of everything that Jesus Christ has done for you. Do you understand that no one else could do for you what Jesus did for you? Did for you. Do you understand that? You put that in your mind when you're, when you're thinking about, should I do this and should I do that? And oh, the temptation to do this and oh, the temptation to do that. And I'm really wondering, is this, is this, stuff, all of, is this stuff really worth it? My, my friends don't like me anymore. My family doesn't like me anymore. And this one ostracizes me. And that one ostracizes Is it worth it? I'm saying to you, Jesus Christ makes it worth it all. He is the only one, the one who is uniquely qualified. So his worthiness, again, is, is based on his uniqueness. His worthiness, again, gives great comfort to the people of God. But thirdly, what's interesting in this passage of Scripture, verses 1 through 7, is that his worthiness is not so much based on the inherent dignity of his person, and he has that, John 1, again, uh, uh, Hebrews 1, uh, Colossians 1, 
That's not so much based on the inherent dignity of his person as much as it is based on the reality of his work of salvation. It is the work of redemption that begins to be the focus as to why the entire created order gives praises to Jesus Christ. Look again at the passage of scripture there in Revelation chapter 5 uh, verses um, verses 5 uh, through uh, verses 5 and 6. Notice what we have here. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. Now what's interesting about that is this. The reference here now is twofold. If, I can, if you'll allow me to make this distinction... The twofold reference is, is, in one sense, it's a reference to the person of Christ in his messianic dignity, not so much in his essential dignity. Do you understand the distinction between the two? In other words, if this was a passage of scripture where what, where what was be said, where what was being set before us would be something like John chapter one: "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God." That would be his essential dignity and glory. Here we have messianic uh, terminology used to, to, to specify who this one was. He is, the, again, the, the line of the tribe of Judah. It's a messianic prophecy. He, he is the root of David. It's a messianic title. He brings about, he, he accomplishes a work that all is bound up in his saving offices as the Messiah. So the, so the occasion for praise now is bound up in the work of Jesus Christ. And what a work that it is. Did you notice what the, what the angel said to John there in verse 5? And one of the, el I'm, I'm sorry, uh, the el one of the elders said to John, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah. And I want you to hear this. Hath prevailed to open the book. He prevailed. This is beautiful. Beautiful for a number of reasons. Number one, it speaks to the fact that Jesus Christ in working out redemption won a great victory. Jesus Christ, if I can say it this way, just didn't show up. Jesus Christ, forgive me for even making this kind of an illustration. Jesus Christ just didn't pick up the remote and start pressing button, bu buttons. Jesus Christ had to come and work out salvation. He had to come and live and die as a man. He had to come and be despised. He had to be rejected. He had to fight against all the powers of darkness. And that's why in this passage of scripture, when the elder says that, G that the lamb, uh, the, the, the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed, he worked the work of victory. And I want you to know and understand that your salvation was not bought at any cheap price. That your salvation came about by way of a great work of victory. By way of a great prevailing power in Jesus Christ. Again, the greatest battle ever won was won on the cross. The greatest victory ever won was the victory that secured your salvation. And so here is Jesus Christ. And you can understand now why. When, uh, when, when the elder says there was one found worthy. And why was he found worthy? Because he did everything that the father commanded of him. Now again, now again I want to make another point of distinction here. Kind of like a theological point, but, uh, but bear with me. You need to understand that when Jesus Christ came into the world, he came to do a specific work. And until, now even though the, uh, uh, Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 is the lamb slain from the foundation of the earth... There was, and, and, and that is established, and, and, and nothing could change that. There still was an actual working out of all of the dynamics of salvation. Yes, Jesus Christ literally was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Yes, Jesus Christ was literally engaged in mental, intellectual, spiritual conflict with his enemies. Yes, Jesus Christ, again, felt all the pains of, uh, of, 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 of the limitations of humanity. And he knew what it was in a spiritual way to have all of my sins and your sins placed upon him. There was a work that was done, but he prevailed. And this prevailing lamb is now the only one who dares approach the Father's throne and takes that scroll out of his hand. This is amazing, isn't it? Oh, Jesus Christ, the great Savior of his people, he has prevailed. He has prevailed. And because of that, he is uniquely qualified to take the scroll. Now, as I said before, we, 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 we've already kind of tried to deal with the question as to, to what the scroll is. Uh, some you know, some commentators uh, again you know use 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 phraseology like this. Uh, this scroll contains uh, uh, the, the whole of human history from the uh, from the divine standpoint. It, it presents to us the irrevocable will of God, that which will and must come to pass. And why will it come to pass? Number one, because it's the will of God. But number two, because of its great executor, Jesus Christ Himself. And so Jesus Christ comes and He comes to the Father and He takes. He takes the scroll. What a picture that is. Will you, will you allow your mind to think on that for a moment? There is God in all of His exalted glory. And there are the four beasts and the 24 elders around the throne. And there is John seeing everything. And there is John hearing the voice of the angel who is worthy. No one comes forth. And there is John weeping. And the weeping there is a sore and deep weeping. Is everything meaningless? Is, is there no hope? Is all lost? And the four and twenty, and, and one of the four and twenty elders says, "Behold, weep not, the line of the tribe of Judah." This thought just occurs to me. Isn't it interesting that the four and twenty elders represent redeemed humanity? If we can say it this way, represent the people of God throughout all history. And do you notice how that the people of God, by way of their understanding and knowledge of what God is able to do and what God has revealed? They speak comfort to, to they, they speak comfort to their brothers and sisters. Oh, the times you've received comfort out of the word of God when a brother or sister came to you with a promise of God. And he said to you, and maybe he said to you, whoever you may be, he or she said to you, Weep not. And maybe this is not exactly the way they said, Weep not, the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And there you are in your difficulty. And and, and and those who know God and those who do His will and know His will and know His word say to you, weep not, the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And so here is again John being comforted. But again the picture, Jesus Christ now comes forward. Who else could approach the throne? Who else could be so bold to come before the Father? And it is interesting. I don't think we should read too much into this. It is interesting. It's not as though the, I think the implication is here, but it's not as though the Father is giving the, the scroll to the Son. That's implied. But the language is more that the, that the Lamb takes the scroll from the... Who does that? There's no one on earth that can approach God and take something from His hand. But Jesus Christ is the uniquely qualified one. Jesus Christ, the one who is your Savior. Jesus Christ, the one who even right now sets himself before you in the preaching of the word as one who died on your behalf. As one who brings you near to the Father. This one was able. And so again, this is, this is again, we see his, his worthiness in taking the scroll. He takes the scroll because 
Again, he is successful in his work. He takes the scroll because he accomplished the Father's will. He takes the scroll because no man can stay his hand. And so he takes the scroll. But the second thing I want you to see here by way of uh, using the scroll as a point of perspective is that from verses 8 through, uh, 8 through 14, now we see not only the worthiness of, uh, of, of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, now we see the worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice what we have here in verses 8 and following. And I want you to pick something up that we, that we kind of noted last week. You might remember last week in in, uh, in Revelation chapter four that that uh, when the uh, when the four when the four beasts began to say holy 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 the four and twenty elders fell down in worship and and again by if you read Revelation properly that's what's happening this happened and that happened as a result the four the four beasts that we understand to be uh, representative of angelic beings they proclaim holy 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 which is their business. And what do the representatives of, uh, representatives of you, redeemed humanity do? They fall down and worship. Now look at verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. So when Jesus Christ comes forth to do his work, the church redeemed humanity. All angelic beings, they fall down and worship. When Christ acts, all Christ is worthy to be praised in all of his actions. And particularly here that we see when he takes this scroll from the Father. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, when we come to this next point here now, the second major point, uh, his worship for, for, for taking and opening the scroll. What's interesting is that we're confronted here with a series of threes. We might not see it uh, on first glance, but as we look and read through, we will see a, a series of threes. Number one, we will see that there are three groups. Uh, there is the church, uh, there are the angels, and there are everything that is created. Well, we'll point that out. The second thing I want you to see is that there are three reasons why Christ is praised. He is praised because, number one, he was slain. He is praised, number two, because he redeemed us under God. And he is praised, number three, because he made us a kingdom of priests and we shall reign with him in the future. Those three things. The third triad that we see is that, uh, is that uh, we, find, uh, we find here uh, the, three act, uh, the three actions of worship. The offering of prayers, the offering of praise, and a proclamation of the works of Jesus Christ. So we have this, this these three, this triad of threes. But I, I just bring that out because I want you to see that that will factor in a little bit as we work through the passage of Scripture. But what, what the primary point that I want you to see is this: because Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified and worthy to take the scroll, He is now worshipped in heaven and on earth and above the earth as well. So let's take a look at this. Well, the first thing that we see here, again, when our Lord takes the scroll, what do we have? The, uh, the, the four beasts and the twenty and four elders uh, uh, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps, golden vows, full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. This is a beautiful picture. It reminds us of what our prayers look like in heaven. It reminds us that every time you and I ascend prayer through the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ, no other mediator is mentioned here. It's not the mediation of angels mentioned here. It's not the mediation of saints mentioned here. It is through the mediation of it is through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And yet, these angels now, this representative group of both of, of both humanity and angels, are now again, in a sense, 
bringing that before the Father. There's a lot more that could be said there. If you'll allow me, I'm going to move on from that though right now. But we see prayer there. The second thing that we see is the song of the saints. Did you see that in verse 9? So look in verse 8. Every one of them having harps and golden vials uh, full of odors or incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Look at verse 9. And they sung a new song. So we have the prayers of the saints. Now we have the song of the saints. And what are the songs? What is the song of the saints? Look there again in verse 9. Thou art worthy to open the book and to open the seals thereof for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred tongue people and nation verse 10 and has made us made made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign upon the earth the three things here now that are mentioned our Lord Jesus Christ he was slain we've talked about that that death was a death of whereby he prevailed over all the enemies of God whereby he prevailed over all of your enemies Secondly, we see that He redeemed us. I want to say this. I want you to be aware of this. I want you to know how valuable and precious your soul is before God Almighty. Now again, you know, this is, um, nobody ever gets tired of hearing that. You're so precious, right? And I say this not tongue-in-cheek. I do want you to understand that by virtue of the price that was paid for your soul, you are extremely valuable in the sight of God. I want you to know and understand by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, a great price was paid for your salvation. Yes, you are. The church is precious in the sight of Jesus Christ. I think of so many passages of Scripture that speak about that that act of redemption, that buying that takes place by way of the exchange of the blood of Christ for your soul. And so here you and I are as those who, again, are, are redeemed and who are purchased by God. The other thing I want you to see here is the fact that that not only does our Lord Jesus Christ redeem us, but also our Lord Jesus Christ makes us a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. He makes us kings and priests. And what this reminds us of is that all of life really is to be prioritized around our worship of God. Do you see your life that way? Is, is, is your worship of God that thing that... Uh, in, in, in a larger society of people who no longer give any recognition to who God is, do you see yourself as well? I'm one of those who, you know, you know, well, I'm there in church, you know, and and during the rest of the week, I'm, a, I'm my own person. That's really not what this passage of scripture leads us to. He has redeemed us in order that we might continually serve Him day and night, serve Him in prayers, and serve Him with service, and serve Him in worship. And so these things become the basis for the worth being ascribed to Jesus Christ. And I guess I should say something about that, that this idea of worship, you're, you're familiar with this, this idea of worship means to ascribe worth to. That's what worship is. The act of worship is the ascribing of, of, of worth to God. And I would, I would suggest that we use this as an evaluator in our lives because we prioritize that which we value. And use that little equation, as it were, to make a self-evaluation as to what your Christian life is. What do I, what I value, I prioritize. You're here on the Lord's Day morning. You're prioritizing the worship of God. You are ascribing worth to God by your being here. Did you consider that? You are ascribing value to God because you're here right now. You are realizing that in the midst of a busy schedule, everything has, to, everything, uh, everything has to clear the table. Why? Because you need to be at the place where God is worshipped. In that act, you ascribe worth to God. You are saying again with this redeemed humanity and, and, and the angelic host, thou art worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. 
So we see again, our Lord Jesus Christ is worshipped uh, for taking the scroll by, uh, you know, by, by the representatives of, uh, of both the, the, uh, the angels and the church. But the next thing I want you to see is this. Notice how we go on uh, now, now down through verse 11. And what we begin to see is we begin to see how, how should we explain this? Do we see a gathering in of those who are worshipping or do we see an expanding out of all of those who are worshipping? In one sense, it may not matter. But look here in verse 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beast and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. So in a sense, John's vision is expanding. First, he saw the four beasts and the 24 elders. And what a magnificent sight that was. What a beautiful song they sung. Thou art worthy because thou wast slain and redeemed us. And now as John continues his gaze, he begins to see again, reaching out in all directions, myriads and myriads of angels now joining in that song. And notice what they say here in verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So much could be said there. And then notice what we have here. The four and twenty elders, the four beasts, the, the myriads of angels. Now look at verse 13. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Do you see how, how the praise of God is now expanded throughout all the created order? And I want you to know and I want you to understand that when you gather together in this humble little church, when you gather together in the name of Jesus Christ with Christ's praise on your lips, with a desire to see Christ revealed in his word and to hear his mighty acts, you join in that great multitude. Where would you rather be? Maybe in heaven itself. But other than that, where would you rather be? Oh, you see again here, Jesus Christ is set before us as the one who is uniquely worthy to do the work of executing the will of the Father upon in human history. And the last thing I want you to see here just by way of dealing with the details of the text is notice again how that Jesus Christ is the Lamb and those and the one who sits on the throne is worshipped forever and ever. Now, if I can say it this way, in the terminology of the book of Revelation, we say the Lamb and he that sits on the throne. In the terminology of our, of our church language or in the terminology of, 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 of theology, we would say like this. We would say how that the Father is, how that the Father with the Son is worshipped and glorified forever. That theological statement. And what we see is the same ascription of praise that is given to the Father is given to the Lord Jesus Christ. The same ascription of praise that is given to the Son is given to the Father. Oh, this beautiful picture of worship that's set before us. And all because it revolves around the activity related to that scroll, that seven-sealed book, that seven-sealed book that in the, that in the, that in the uh, understanding of the first readers of the book of Revelation would have known and understand. You know, when, when, when the Roman authorities have something significant to convey on, they seal it with seven seals. And no one except the person who it's directed to or no one who is worthy can open, would dare open those seals. And now here we have the will of God set before us in this scroll and only one person is able to come forward. And he comes forward and now what I would suggest to you that as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation, what we will see is this. As each of these scrolls, I'm sorry, as each of these seals is unsealed, we will see again the victory of Christ unveiled. We will see in a way that's almost inexplicable, except for our knowledge of 
of sin in general and of our own sin in particular, we will see in an inexplicable way rebels against the purposes of God. We will see, again, demonic forces. We will see fallen humanity. We will see Satan rising up against the purposes of God, all to be ultimately judged. We will see a class of people, rather than rebelling against God, again, see in what Jesus Christ is laying forth uh, by way of the purposes of God, a willingness of engaging in that loyalty and obedience on the one hand, rebellion and conflict on the other hand. And when it comes to its end, and when it comes to its point, what happens? Jesus Christ will show himself to be again the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then again, by way of human destiny, by way of the, the history of all God's created order, by way of God's intention for everything, what do we see? We see the eternal glory of God and the eternal blessedness of His people bound up there in chapters 20 through 22. Well, this is a large kind of overview of this book of Revelation, all contained in that, in that book that was sealed with seven seals. And you're, if I can say it this way, you're blessed for knowing this. You're not, you're not blessed because a particular preacher on a particular day told you this. You're blessed for knowing this because this is what the Word of God unveils. And the more you know and the more you understand the purposes of God, and the more you see the guarantee of the victory of Christ, and, more, and the more that you, that you see that those who rebel against the will of God will be put down, and those who, who give loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ will join in that, in, in that happy throng. And so my brothers and sisters, I, I ask you to, again to consider with me refreshing your minds the one who sits on the throne and the one who has the scroll in his hand. I ask you to picture with me what it is for this one who is uniquely worthy to come and take that scroll from the Father's hands. And I want you to see and picture with me as the scroll is taken up, all of angelic beings, the church, fall at his feet. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's the very nature of worship. So in closing out a passage of scripture like this, I want to come back to our primary proposition Jesus Christ, by virtue of his person and work, is the only one with authority and power to execute and bring to pass the will of the Father. I also want you to see, by way of John's reaction and weeping at first, and then being comforted at the coming forth of Jesus Christ, I want you to know and understand that this world is not just made up of meaningless matter. Neither is life meaningless existence. But everything on earth, above the earth and under the earth, has a destiny. And the destiny for the redeemed people of God is to glorify God forever and to enjoy His presence forever. Secondly, or thirdly, I want you to understand this. Understand how blessed you are to have this knowledge. Without this knowledge, John weeps. With it, he, along with every created uh, thing, joins in the worship of God who sits on the throne. When we know these things, it does good to the soul. And then lastly, I want this passage of Scripture to inform our worship as a church. I want us to come to this place of worship with our minds and souls elevated, with a purpose to set before God our prayers, with a purpose to have on our lips His praises, with a purpose to have our ears and our hearts ready to have declared before us the mighty acts of the one who is uniquely qualified to do the will of God. Our Father and our God, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, how we ask and we pray that our worship might be commensurate with the worship that you are receiving now in heaven. Grant this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.